Good morning, church. Uh, I'm so excited to be with you today. My name is Anna Shipley. Um, I am a candidate for ministry out of the North Texas Conference, um, but I was invited to speak with you today by my dear friend Ashley, who I met on mission trip this past summer with your uh, students at UM Army. Um, a little bit about me just before we get into it, so that way we can become best friends. Uh, I currently am a full-time uh, seminary student at SMU Perkins through their hybrid Houston-Galveston Extension program. I worship at Covenant UMC in North Austin, and I also work as the regional director of UM Army, which is a nonprofit that creates mission opportunities to empower youth to help people in their communities. Um, basically, all that means is I'm not a pastor yet, and so I was very gracious that my friend Trevor could come and preside over communion this morning, um, but I'm really excited to be with you today and to talk a little bit about the Word of God. Would y'all pray with me? Dear God, um, thank you so much for this opportunity to share in communion and in worship and to learn more about you. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable and pleasing to you, my creator, sustainer, my rock, and my redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so y'all are in the midst of a series, uh, so I hear, I hope this is true, on discipleship um, and the means of grace. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit first about what discipleship means, uh, to me anyways. And I think that really we need to focus on the idea of discipleship as being engagement in ministry of outreaching love and witness. But also today what we're going to focus on is the second half of it, that when we're in the process of discipleship, when we have committed our lives to Christ, that that is then an opportunity that calls believers to the ministries of servanthood and to service to all of the world. So as far as the means of grace go, um, our good friend John Wesley, I hear we're a fan of him around here in the Methodist Church, um, stated this sermon this one time. Uh, he talked about it a lot, though, about this idea of the means of grace. And the means of grace are ways that God works invisibly in disciples, disciples being believers, these people committed to this life of service, hastening, strengthening, and confirming their faith so that way God's grace can pervade in and through them and work in the world. As we look at the means of grace today, um, we're going to talk about two different categories, but I want to clarify at first that although Wesley was adamant in this belief that these means of grace are important and they're opportunities for us to share God's grace, we are not able to create grace on our own. That is something that we can only do through Christ. Um, grace comes from God, but we are offered as opportunities through these means of grace, the ability to channel grace given by God into the world. In the sermon, Wesley reminds us in scripture that we are to wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord for salvation, but it does not say that we should wait idly. It does not suggest that we sit here and we wait for God to do all the work, but instead that we are called to a higher purpose, that we are given the opportunity to wait in postures of prayer, community, worship, and service. So in this sermon, uh, John Wesley divides us into two categories. We have works of piety and works of mercy. Um, and so I know that throughout the few weeks that y'all have been studying this, uh, we've already covered some of these, but I think specifically a lot of the focus has been on these works of piety. So prayer, um, spending time in scripture, engaging in the act of Holy Communion, um, baptism, fasting, Christian conferencing, which is like a fancy way of saying worship, <laughs> um, Bible study, discipleship, things like that. Um, but today I really want us to focus on this idea of works of mercy, the act of giving ourselves in a sacrifice that we are taking our positions of power and taking the opportunity to then pour that out for people in need. Feeding the hungry, visiting people in prison, visiting those who are sick, giving generously. That's kind of what Wesley wanted to focus on. So before we like get really into the nitty-gritty here, I want to give you a hypothetical question. Um, so as I was thinking about this, 
Uh, if you ever really want a good time, now Ashley's getting nervous right now because she's like, why is Anna talking about the rapture? That seems like not what I was asking her to come here to do. But it's a joke, just wait for it. Uh, so as I was thinking about this, I want you to consider the ways that your church and the way that you are ingrained in your community and the impact that you have. If you, today, everyone in this congregation, this whole church, were to get taken up, raptured, gone, nothing left, what impact would be left on the community around you? Would they miss you? What are the things that your community relies on you for? What are the things that people come to this church and say, this church is doing this for me, this church is offering this to the community? Would they be glad that you're gone? <laughs> so I want you to think about this. Also, if you ever need a good time, look up in clip art what it says when you put in like the rapture. Um, it's really funny. Uh, so that's why I went with our friend Nicholas Cage here instead. But I just want you to take a second and think about the ways that your church is currently at work in your community and the impact that you're having. What ways are you making the place that you're in better? Now let's establish our problem here. The world is in an intense state of need. I wanted to turn a little bit to this concept that I really like from Buddhism, actually. Um, and it's a concept called dukkha. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but we're going to go with it. It looks like it. And um, it's this concept called the wheel out of alignment. And so in Buddhism, there's these four stages that you have to go through to alleviate the world's suffering. And the first is acknowledgement. And dukkha is a word that quite literally means, like I said, the wheel is out of alignment. There's something off. There's something wrong. There's a persistent problem. There's something that is, feels incurable about the things that are going on around us. In a report recently by UNICEF, we learned that statistically every 40 seconds, a child will die of causes related to lack of access to safe drinking water. If you want to look closer to home, there's the homeless issue in Austin. One out of 100 individuals who populate the city of Austin are experiencing homelessness. One out of 100. In the state of Texas, 13% of individuals live below the poverty line. In 2021, a third of adult Texans reported symptoms of depression or anxiety. We're constantly surrounded by all of these statistics and all of this hardship. And we have these opportunities, these opportunities to see this and ask for more, to work in these areas. Pope Francis um, put out an encyclical in 2015, which is just like a letter, basically, to all the other popes. And um, he was specifically talking about the ideas of the environment and the ways that we're impacting the environment and the, the world around us. And I really love this quote that he gives. He says, Dare to turn what is happening in the world into our own personal suffering, and thus to discover what each of us can do about it. I'm going to say that one more time. Dare to turn what is happening to the world into our own personal suffering, and thus to discover what each of us can do about it. Friends, we have an issue with empathy. <laughs> we need to have this opportunity to take these statistics and internalize them to say, what does it look like that this could be people that I care about, people in my community? How would I feel if I was in these positions? In this idea of dukkha, we also have um, three different root causes in the second stage. So once we've acknowledged that there's a problem, there's these three root causes that Buddhism suggests. And um, the three causes that they argue that are the source of all, all inequity all struggle, all strife in the world are greed, ill will, and ignorance. Each of these is offered a cure, a cure to the root cause of this acknowledged, uh, acknowledged issue. So the cure to greed being generosity, the cure to ill will being mercy, compassion, empathy, and then the cure to ignorance is what they call right view. This one's a little more nuanced. The idea of 
a deep embodied understanding of the truth of things, a refusal to see things in rose-colored glasses, but instead to have a deep and intimate knowledge of suffering, to know what is happening in our world, to be personally invested in the origin of it, and learning what it means to be a person who's committed and convicted by the cessation of suffering. So now to look at our scripture for the day, I want us to consider this opportunity um, that we have to look at this idea of the way that greed can be cured, ill will can be cured, ignorance can be cured by careful and active effort on the part of a Christian believer. So a little bit of context going into our scripture for today. Sometimes around like 40, 50 AD range, um, there's evidence that there was a really, really large famine uh, that struck Judea which rendered this really great need in Jerusalem, this great need for food, for sustenance, for provision from other areas. And in Scripture, we see there's a lot of petitions happening kind of throughout many books of the Bible and through the letters made by church leaders like James and John asking people like Paul, who were serving more affluent areas, for encouragement of contributions. So in um, 2 Corinthians, or in Corinthians in general, we have 1 Corinthians as well, Paul references the giving of the Corinthian church to this cause originally in his first letter, in the first letter of Corinthians, but then we see him bring it up here again in second. So in the first, they did a good job, and in the second, well, we need to ask again. <laughs> so right before this section we're focusing on today, Paul in chapter 8 brings up this other church, the church of Macedonia, and their efforts, and the Macedonians, despite experiencing ex like extreme poverty themselves, they're in a much worse situation than the Corinthians, had given generously, and Paul says, quote, of their own accord. In 2 Corinthians 8.2, Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm not commanding you, but <laughs> I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, that being the Macedonians. For you know well the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for his sake he became poor. For your sake he became poor. Paul isn't asking them for a small task here. He's asking them for generosity, but he reminds them that Jesus' generosity has been quite beneficial to them, and perhaps they should consider that. And then he says, here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Let me offer you a word of advice. Last year, you were not first only to give, but also to have the desire to give. Now finish the work, the work that you promised, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion according to your means. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So after this slightly passive-aggressive intro, where uh, Paul is saying like, hey, I don't, need, I don't even need to tell you this. I know y'all are going to do the right thing. But here's the thing. Paul has been going around to all of these churches bragging. He's like, my Corinthians... They're going to give so much money. They're so great. They're going to do it willingly. It's going to be awesome. How many of y'all are the people that make plans for your friends? Like you suggest the restaurant, anyone? I'm like always the person that's like, we should go here. I think it's a great idea. I'm very type A. I'm a planner. And there's a little, there's a little stress in that because you hype it up. You're like, I love this restaurant. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great time. This is what we should wear. We're going to go at this time. It's going to be great. And you talk about it for a week. And then there's that moment, that moment like, the 20 minutes leading up to getting there, that you get a little nervous. Because what if you, what if you overpromised? What if you said this was the best restaurant ever and then everyone has a miserable time and it was your idea, right? And I think Paul is getting this little, this little anxious bug where he's saying, I told everyone how great the Corinthians are. What if they're not? What if, what if when the Macedonians show up, they notice that the Corinthians actually aren't that generous and I've promised this whole big thing and I, I'm going to be embarrassed. And so Paul's saying, don't make me look stupid. I promised that y'all would be good. 
So please, please figure it out. And right before this verse, we have this introduction. He says, for if any Macedonians were to come with me to Corinth and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. (laughs) And then we get into verse six. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Um, On the next slide, we have a little bit of a breakdown as to two words that I think are really important in this. Both words in the Greek, um, sparingly and generously. So the first word, phytominos, means holding back. It means restraint, measuring by the teaspoon instead of the gallon. It's like the opposite of how I make chocolate chip cookies. I use the Nestle on the back of the thing, and I just dump like three extra cups of the chocolate chips in there at the end. That's not phytominos. It's, It's the idea of holding restraint, holding back, not providing more than what is needed, sometimes providing less. And then the opposite is this idea of generosity, eulogia, um, bountiful, and it's a combination of two words. We have you and logos, good word. This is where we get the word eulogy. We're providing a good word for a person who has passed. But it also means a blessing. Um, so what Paul is really saying here is whoever, whoever sows, whoever's stingy, will get stingy rewards. Whoever gives blessings will receive blessings in return. Whoever provides goodness to others will reap that same goodness. And that doesn't necessarily mean in like a karma cyclical way, but the idea that we have benefits from serving others. It makes us feel better. It brings joy to our life. When we are doing what God has called us to, we're in this state of alignment. We reduce that dukkha, we reduce the wheel, and we get back on our right path. Paul is also in this passage, um, in this verse specifically, referencing the Old Testament. I think on the next slide we have that, yes. So in Proverbs 11, we see the same pattern. It's a little bit, a little bit different, but very similar. In Proverbs 11, it says, One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Paul's adding to his credibility a little bit here. He's like, if you don't believe me, believe the Old Testament. Like, we've already been through this. Uh, and so he's, he's using that to reference here. And then he moves on in verse 7 to say, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Anything given under compulsion, Paul is saying, does not count in the same way. True generosity is an attitude of the heart. It is not an action that is coerced. The Macedonians, that he references as being the example, offered their gifts freely and they had less to spare. Paul is telling the Corinthians that they should find joy and opportunity and goodness in their generosity, not the pang of sorrow that comes when you have to pull out your wallet, not the resentment when they spend their time or expectations of a worthwhile and proportionate acknowledgement, perhaps a plaque for their effort. They're just supposed to be excited to have the opportunity to be there and be serving their community. Then in verse 8, He concludes um, with a reference to Psalm 111, saying, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. That last verse here, quoting again Psalm 111, refers to God's generosity originally in the Old Testament, not the generosity of people. But Paul's use here demonstrates his message that the Corinthians should be giving to the same extent that God has given to them. The generosity that has been bestowed to them, free of charge, the grace that has been offered, the mercy of Christ, 
is the standard that we are to be meeting with our generosity and our service to others. In Scripture, Paul speaks of this reputation of the Corinthians as being people verbally committed to giving, but reminds them that in order to be viewed as worthy of that verbal commitment, their actions have to align with their promises. Friends, as Christians, we no longer have this reputation, unfortunately, of making good on our promises. Whereas Paul promised that when the Macedonians came, that they would be impressed by the, the, the generosity of the Corinthians, and perhaps they were, over time, many Pauls have promised many marginalized groups that when they came and they expressed need to Christians, that they would be met with generosity. But over time, there's been a lot of instances where we haven't made good on our promises. I remember as a kid, we always used to sing the song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And I, I love that song, but I do question if sometimes that's true for all people at this point. Uh, on my next slide, I, I did a, a Google search. I think it's going to be pretty small, but you'll have to take my word for it if you can't read it. And I was just curious, um, talking about this idea of public perception of Christians, and I put in the Google search, why are Christians so, and then just hit send and let it fill it out. And there was not a single positive word on the first two pages of Google. Uh, we got, why are Christians so mean, judgmental, hypocritical, self-centered, greedy, forceful, and most importantly, unlike Jesus? What does it look like to reclaim that narrative? What does it look like that when the Macedonians show up at our door, when they show up to our churches, that they aren't unimpressed, that they aren't dismayed by the generosity or the stinginess or the judgment or the self-centeredness of our congregations, but instead are amazed by the selfless generosity of the people that are serving them. Now, to clarify, I don't think that this is an everybody problem, but I do think it's something that we need to acknowledge when we're going out and we're serving people. There's this, this stigma, this hurt, this confusion, this concern that what we are promising is not true. And I want you to make sure that what we're, when we're giving the good news of Jesus Christ, that it might be a little too good to understand sometimes, but it's never too good to be true. I want to give you a more lighthearted example to show you that I have faith in the church. <laughs> so um, a couple of months ago in October, I broke my foot and like not in a cool way, like in a really dramatic, like I broke it so bad kind of way that I had to have surgery and get some screws put in and all that. But we're walking now, so that's cool. Um, and this was in around October. And I want to talk to you about just the ways that in a small instance like that, uh, people showed up for me and people in my Christian community showed up for me. So I broke up playing soccer, and one of my friends, I used to work at the Texas Wesley Foundation, um, one of my friends, Miranda, is on my soccer team, and she carried me off the field, took me to the ER, and then her two brothers, also members of the Texas Wesley, went and picked up my car, drove it home for me. We went back from the ER, I slept on their couch, they made me dinner. The next day, um, my best friend and former roommate, Stephanie, who I led worship with at the Wesley, came over. Uh, I have a loft bed. You can kind of see the situation there. It's not great to have a ladder to go to sleep when you have a broken foot, fun fact. Um, and she took my mattress off of it and put it on the floor, rearranged my entire apartment so it would be more accessible to me, and spent two hours sitting with me, um, helping me take my medicine and making sure that everything was settled. My best friend Colin, who is my spiritual accountability partner, came to my apartment once a week and cleaned it for me, and he took my trash to the dumpster. Uh, the church that I had started attending, Covenant UMC, just three weeks prior to breaking my foot, brought me food every day for two weeks. My fridge was just like casseroles stacked in like Lego brick style, which was lovely. Um, 
and I would microwave them and I'd put them in a Tupperware and I'd like throw them to the other side of the room so I could crutch back to eat them at the table. <laughs> uh, my former bosses um, and now friends, David and Anne, you guys know David, uh, came to my apartment with treats and Anne brought books and they sat and they prayed with me and talked to me. I got a card from my former congregation there at the Wesley. I go to seminary at SMU Perkins, but I'm in the hybrid extension program, which means that we do classes in Houston, and um, we have to walk through the Methodist hospital there, which is quite a maze, and I had people pushing me in a wheelchair and carrying my bags and offering me extensions on projects, which I do miss dearly now that my foot is fine. People didn't say, if you need anything, let me know. They said, I'm coming and I'm doing this for you. They showed up without me saying a word, because, you know, when you're in need, asking is a burden. It's a humbling experience. They didn't make me ask for help. They thought of creative ways to show up for me, to sit with me, and I guarantee I was not fun to be around. And they had no expectations of flashiness. There was no reward for doing so. Just genuine care. The last picture I have up here, I, uh, when I had surgery, I went home to Rowlett, Texas, Dallas. Um, again, the whole ladder bed thing, living alone, apartment, second story, no elevator, really not conducive to the crutches. So I went home and had surgery in Dallas and stayed with my parents. And um, they let me use their room because my room's upstairs at our house. And they put this folding table in there. And every day, every meal, they would come and they would sit while I sat with my broken foot on their bed. And they would eat, even if I was sleeping, even if I wasn't talking, and they would sit and they were present with me. They had no expectations for me to do anything for them. I was incapable. <laughs> I wasn't really eating myself, but they would bring their food in there despite having a perfectly good kitchen table around 30 yards the other direction, and they would eat with me and spend time with me because they cared for me. What does it look like to be present for people around you? What does it look like to show up? How can you show up? Who in your life is in need of your genuine, no-strings-attached care? So I bring you back to our first question. If you were to disappear right now, who misses you? Not in like a loving, understanding way, but who, who are you providing for? You don't need to be like a dependent on a tax form to be a provider. <laughs> what does it look like that you're praying for people, that people are relying on your prayer, that people rely on a hug from you once a week? How are you showing up for the people around you in your community? John Wesley famously once said, the world is my parish. That's the title of my sermon today. Granted, very different, very different context. I'm totally stripping this from its context entirely. This is not what he was talking about at all. But I thought the wording was nice. Um, the world is my parish. Widen our perspective. Become intimately acquainted with the needs of the people around you. Do not wait idly for the Spirit, but instead commit to be a vessel for it to move in the world through you and in you and among you. And I promise that that will sow joy in your life as well. In the Lord's name we pray. Amen.